Good morning. My name is Mary Carroll, and I'm reading scripture this morning. We have quite a long passage uh, divided up most of Exodus 3 and 4, starting with Exodus 3, 1 to 17, jumping to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and 10 to 17. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Moses led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, the bush was blazing yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses turned and said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmakers. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, 
the God of your ancestors, has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Moses answered, but suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to Moses, what is it? What is that in your hand? A staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it. And it became a staff in his hand. So that they may believe that the Lord the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. But, Mo but Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently, 
Even now he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. This is the word of the Lord. morning. I wonder how many of you have been headhunted. That is, rather than looking for a job, the employer comes looking for you. This is essentially what happens to Moses in today's scripture reading. Raised in the royal court in Egypt, Perhaps Moses looked like the ideal candidate for confronting Pharaoh on behalf of the Israelites. What is intriguing, however, about this morning's text is how much resistance Moses puts up. Apparently, he doesn't really want the job. Now, while I personally struggle with the idea that, as given in most translations, uh, the number of Israelite men who came out of Egypt was about 600,000, hence with women and children, a crowd numbering at least two million. Uh, the issue actually being over the correct translation of the Hebrew word for thousand. But many scholars suggest that the Israelites that came out at that time numbered in the tens of thousands, which seems more reasonable. Still, along with the Genesis account of the patriarchs, the account of the Exodus became the story that gave the nation of Israel its identity. Even hundreds of years later, Israelites would recite these words. Note the pronouns. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When the prophets talk about the nation of Israel, either what it is or 
where it was going, they often do so with a reference to the story of the Exodus. Even Luke, in his gospel account of Jesus' transfiguration, comments that Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah about his upcoming exodus, implying that his death on the cross would be a liberating event like that of Israel passing through the Red Sea. Given how fundamental the Exodus story was for the nation of Israel, it is intriguing that the portrayal of Moses in chapters 3 and 4 was never edited to make him a more admirable figure. The account begins with Moses, engaged in the mundane task of herding a flock in a place far removed from anywhere important. Uh, not the only time in Scripture that God would show up to some shepherds in the wilderness. Uh, I don't um, check back in about three months on that one. And Moses is drawn to a bush that is on fire but that doesn't burn up. And not only that, but to a bush that speaks to him. And the one speaking to Moses identifies himself as the God of his father and of Israel's ancestors. Tells them that he has observed the misery of his people and heard their cry. And he commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh to get him to release the Israelites. Theirs is not a situation that needs reform. It needs deliverance. Many times in life, we are involved in trying to make situations that are not so good a little bit better. This isn't one of those. This is not a story about social reform in Egypt or about replacing the Pharaoh with someone else. The only hope here is to get out. Any apparent allusion here to Jordan Peele's film, also entitled Get Out, is most definitely intended. Just substitute the taskmasters enforcing hard labor for a psychotic family inflicting people with night terrors, and you can see how the analogies can develop. And just before anybody uh, uh, complains about the preacher speaking favorably about a horror film, I suspect the Israelites would have called their situation a horror show. And God promises to deliver them from their hard labor and to lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the first time that God speaks in the book of Exodus, and it reveals his agenda for what he intends to do. And as the Exodus becomes the paradigm for God's acts of salvation throughout the Bible, 
It informs us as to what God offers us in Jesus Christ. It's not about making our lives a little better. It's about getting out and moving into a new creation. Now, what's interesting is the ensuing interaction that Moses has with God. Moses' first reply is the question, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Fair enough. Moses recognizes that even if he was brought up in the Egyptian court, doing what God was asking may have seemed like a fool's errand. He reveals both a lack of personal ambition and uh, a lack of desire for leadership, to which God assures Moses of his presence. I will be with you. Acknowledging that, yes, indeed, making such a request before Pharaoh is not something anyone is able to do in their own strength. Moses' second reply to God is to ask, but who are you? If the Israelites ask me for the name of the God who is commissioning me, what shall I say? To which God gives his personal name, I am who I am. The name God gives is a famous one. The Hebrew words translated, I am who I am, are actually uh, grammatically ambiguous. They can be translated in a variety of ways, as you'll be able to see in the footnotes of most modern translations. I will be who I will be. I will be who I am. Those are both possibilities. From his name we get the name that was probably pronounced something like Yahweh, that in our English Bibles is translated as LORD in all caps. Unlike the word God, this is a proper name. And while it is a proper name based on a verb phrase, it still has a sense of mystery behind it. Rather than being a kind of metaphysical statement about God, the name seems to promise God's faithfulness to his people. I will be God for you in whatever is coming. That's who God is. Moses' third reply to God is to say, but suppose the Israelites do not believe me or listen to me, even though a few verses earlier God had said they will listen to your voice. Apparently, Moses wasn't convinced. And at this point, we begin to wonder if we haven't begun wondering already whether Moses really wants this job. In response to this, God resorts to what appears to be a magic trick, turning Moses' wooden staff into a snake and the snake back into a staff. A bit weird, but enough for Moses to move on. His fourth reply is to say, Oh my Lord, I have never been eloquent. 
but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, perhaps referring to a speech impediment. Indeed, how many Fortune 500 CEOs do you think have speech impediments? To which God res responds, who gives mortals speech? Who makes them mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, God knows full well Moses' speech abilities, but he calls him to this task anyways. Indeed, God is quite capable of working through our weaknesses, as he will confirm to the Apostle Paul some hundreds of years later, saying, my power is made perfect in weakness. Moses' fifth and final reply to God is to say, oh my Lord, please send someone else, which involves a stark contradiction. You can't call someone Lord and then not do what they're asking you to do. Perhaps in his first four responses, Moses was just trying to be polite and God simply wasn't getting the hint. But now it's clear Moses doesn't want the job. Kindly get someone else. But in his anger, God is undeterred. Now he says that Moses' brother Aaron will accompany him before Pharaoh. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you and you shall serve as God for him. Now, there are a number of remarkable things about this series of interactions. First, it's interesting that there is any interaction at all between God and Moses. Standing in the presence of God apparently does not leave Moses incapable of speaking. God does not so overpower Moses that all he can do is listen in silence. God welcomes Moses into a genuine encounter even if it makes God angry. I suspect that challenges some of our preconceptions about what God is like. Second, I find it remarkable that this account has survived in Scripture. Imagine being an Israelite in captivity and you hear that the person God has chosen to lead you to freedom is doing everything he can think of to get out of the job. How much confidence would you have in that person's leadership? Indeed, it is interesting that what we have in chapters 3 and 4 is not an idealized picture of Moses, but a warts and all portrayal. But this is true of much of the Bible, where we don't find heroes 
Rather, we find people who are somewhat problematic. Abraham tries to manufacture a fulfillment of God's promise by sleeping with his maid, Hagar, and ends up exiling both Hagar and the son she bears. Jacob connives to get his father's blessing that was intended for his older brother, Esau. Aaron coordinates the Israelites' effort to fashion an idol. David has one of his generals killed so he can take his wife Bathsheba, and so on and so on. Leaving Jesus aside for the moment, all the heroes of the Bible are seriously flawed people. And what is significant, in light of the way that the Bible has been edited and shaped over the centuries, is that the flaws have not all been edited out. God doesn't use ideal people to move the story forward simply because there aren't any. He uses people who have serious problems, people like you and me. I think this speaks both to what we think of ourselves and what we think of our leaders. When thinking that we are not up to the task, whatever the task might be, remember Moses. God's choice of him does not seem to be based on whether or not he thought he was up to the task. Moses may have been chosen because of his upbringing in the Egyptian court, but it was God's empowering that made him adequate for the role. Furthermore, I think this account of Moses may be a correction for how we sometimes think of leaders. There are times when we place such hope in leaders, whether it be politicians, leaders in a company, pastors in a church, or whatever, that we effectively place them on pedestals and expect them to be heroes, that is, expect them to be something that nobody is. And when they don't live up to this image, we start to tear them down. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for holding leaders to a high standard, a standard that is commensurate with the authority with which they have been entrusted. And I'm all for taking steps to protect communities against the abuse of power. But better to see leaders, indeed to see all people, as individuals who have some abilities but also some flaws, as people who need to be held to account, but also at times need to be given the benefit of the doubt, and at other times to be forgiven. The hesitations of Moses suggest that we see leaders firstly as humans rather than as heroes. Indeed, while Moses seems to have overdone it in trying to sidestep God's commission, there is something endearing about him knowing that he was not craving the role of leadership of the Israelites. Sometimes the desire to be in power is a warning sign itself. But the third remarkable thing that Moses' interaction 
with God teaches us is something about God himself, his patience and his adaptability. Equipped with an understanding of God being almighty and all-wise, as providentially guiding history to bring about justice in the end, we, knew it, we may know that God works through people, but we may also assume that it is only the supercompetent, the morally flawless, the fully compliant people that God can use. That is, people who haven't messed up their lives and who don't make a fuss. The story of God's commissioning of Moses seems to call that into question. God may have a plan in mind, but he's willing to enter into conversation, even debate with people. He's willing to develop a plan B or a plan C, depending on whom he's working with. At the beginning, God didn't plan to bring in Aaron, but he did it because it was a way of getting Moses on board. Last Sunday, I appreciated Ryan speaking of Moses in his ark on the Nile as a baptism, particularly in light of the context of Levi's baptism. Some of you know that I was brought up in a Christian tradition that restricted baptism only to believers, and hence we did not baptize small children. Of course, I'm st I still affirm baptism is appropriate for someone who has decided to become a follower of Jesus, I've also come to see that something very profound is being said in the baptism of small children, namely this. God doesn't wait for you to get your act together before placing a claim on your life. God doesn't wait until you finish your training program before asking you to get involved. God doesn't expect you to be flawless before he can work in and through your life. There's no question that God is going to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He is, however, quite prepared to modify his plan depending on whom he's working with and what they do. In addition to the qualities of all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving to describe God, let's add the quality of always able to adapt to our idiosyncrasies and fickleness. Thanks be to God.
just as I am. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just Just as